What's up, y'all? Welcome to another edition of Tuesday Talks. I'm Ryan Shepard. I'm hosting today with Ladarian Gillette. Shout out to DJ Sofa for getting us started every week, bringing the great energy. Um, we're excited to be with y'all for another fantastic conversation. Um, again, we're celebrating Women's History Month at CARE um, and, and around the world. And uh, it's been truly a phenomenal Women's History Month for me and for us uh, at CARE and at the Innovation Hub. And we're looking to wrap it up this month with another amazing conversation for you this week. Uh, so let's get, in, get into this week's Tuesday talk. The CARE Atlanta Global Innovation Hub convenes the people and organizations dedicated to defeating poverty by achieving social justice and equity everywhere. The Innovation Hub creates the space, programs, and support systems to connect leaders with global practitioners in hopes of solving the world's most pressing problems. Tuesday Talks was created to build bridges. We hope that each week our participants leave with the deeper understanding of the topics that we discuss and feel more clear about how they can contribute to solutions in their personal journey. At the Innovation Hub, we believe in the leadership of women. And we especially look to highlight expertise from Black, Indigenous, and communities of color. We're committed to centering and uplifting all justice-centered voices in our conversations and programming. Data science continues to transform our world in truly extraordinary ways. Yet we all play a critical role in determining how data science and other technological innovations can serve to benefit humanity in more expansive and inclusive ways. In our work here in the social sector, we report to many uh, stakeholders, the communities where we serve and partner, our staff, our donors, policymakers, nonprofits and social businesses must be able to show what they do and to demonstrate the impact of how that in terms of the many factors, including mental, uh, just to name a few. Despite these challenges across all sectors, managing data effectively still continues to be a thing that we grapple with. And the data imperative is here to stay. The dropping cost of technology makes collecting data much more affordable these days and easier than it was in the past. And data has a capacity to make the work of social change agents more effective and can build the case for support to the best programs and enterprises. So in today's conversation, we'll give space to an amazing and pioneering group of women who are collecting and utilizing data to improve communities around the world. So let me introduce you to our dynamic panel for today. First, I want you to meet my friend and colleague, Emily, Emily Janik. Emily is the Senior Director of Learning and Thought Leadership at CARE. She's passionately committed to bringing together different people and perspectives to solve problems and create impact in the world. The best part of her job is seeing the impact that is possible all over the globe. Emily, welcome. Good to see you. Thanks for being with us today. Yeah, thanks for having me. Absolutely. Next, I want you to meet Harim Navid. Harim works on the integrated analytics team at Munich RE, where she leads work on bias testing and fairness considerations of putting modules into production. Prior to joining Munich RE, she worked at the Center for Data Science and Public Policy, where she focused on applying data science to solve problems in public safety, education, and transportation. Harim, welcome to Tuesday Talks. Thank you, Ryan. Happy to be here. Excellent. Next, I want you all to meet Sandhya Ramakrishnan. Sandhya is the global marketing lead at Girl Effect and works towards using best practices, new age content, performance, brand and digital marketing techniques to ensure that content and programs reach girls where they are spending their time. 
especially across digital platforms. Her focus is on breaking through the barriers of privilege, access, and gender, and to ultimately have adolescent girls and young women take up the space that they have historically been denied. Sandia, welcome to Tuesday Talks. Thank you so much. Uh, it's, it's a pleasure to be here. Absolutely. Uh, so let's get into our discussion for today. We always kick off Tuesday Talks by asking our speakers to tell us a little bit more about yourself. So give us a sense of the communities that you call home and the communities that you're advocating for through your work. Let's first hear from Sandia, then Harim and Emily. Hello. Uh, thank you so much for inviting me here today. I'm very excited to uh, share my very limited understanding of digital in the, and data in this social good space. I'm Sandhya Ramakrishnan. I'm the global marketing lead at Girl Effect. Uh, I'm an Indian, cis, hetero, very well-educated, uh, highly privileged due to the lack of uh, birth uh, within the overall ecosystem of, uh, of India. I, I come from what is called the uh, South Indian diaspora within the country itself. Um, a bit of a forced nomad who's, uh, my father had a transferable job and he worked in the financial sector, specifically around small industries and cottage industries. And so I got to travel around the country quite a bit with him. Uh, and so it's just become an ingrained part of my uh, DNA now to be able to uh, live anywhere and, and move around depending on where opportunities take me. And yeah, that's just a, a very quick uh, personal introduction. I. Uh, I've been at Girl Effect now for about three, three and a half years. Uh, I joined in the India team and, and was part of the team that set up a brand in India called Chaja. And now I uh, take care of marketing across the, our global portfolio. Thank you so much for inviting me. And yeah, looking forward to this chat. Thank you again for being with us. Harim, what about you? What communities do you call home? Who are you advocating for? Yeah, thanks, Ryan. So. Uh... You know, just to start this off, uh, I am now a member of the COVID positive community. That's why I'm coming to you live from my hotel room in New York. I'm isolating, so I apologize if something cuts out or if I sound a little off. I'm feeling okay, uh, but, you know, just, just wanted to give that context. So um, I was born in Karachi, Pakistan, and raised in Toronto, Canada as a, you know, kid of immigrants, as an immigrant myself. I, and especially growing up at such a you know, multi-ethnic diverse community like Toronto, I connect to a lot of people through food uh, by eating it and also uh, uh, preparing food for people I love. So, so that's a big part of that. And kind of tied to food, I'm, I'm Muslim and I'm very excited for Ramadan, which is kind of the opposite. You're giving up food for about a month. <laughs> so that starts in, the, in, the, in a week or so and I'm very excited about that. Um, but, you know, just about my background, I have a degree in, in math, but I really uh, love applying that kind of technical background to problems that have to do with people. And I started in a data science and public policy context. Um, but now I work at Munich Re where it's not necessarily like a public policy context, but I'm still looking at health related data of people every day and trying to build models and solutions that give people access to uh, insurance coverage that they need. And especially with the COVID pandemic, I think we've seen how access to coverage and care can, can make a big difference in, in people's outcomes and lives. So that's a bit, uh, bit of background about me and I'm very excited to be here. 
Thanks for being with us. And yeah, we're wishing you a speedy recovery. I'm part of the community of folks that have beat COVID. So we hope that you get to the other side of this quickly and uh, very healthily. Emily, what about you? What's up with you these days? What communities are you representing and advocating? <laughs> so I grew up in a small town in Michigan uh, with a lot of people who looked a lot like me. Um, and, and what Sandhya said resonated for me. I grew up with a lot of privilege in ways that I, some I knew about and a lot I didn't know about. Right? A lot of things that you just take it for granted because it's your life and you're rolling through it. And, you know, well-educated and got to do a lot of incredible things that you just sort of think, okay, this is what life is like. Um, it's going to sound a little funny, but a million years ago, I was a Peace Corps volunteer. And so I really think in some ways of that village that I lived in for two years as one of my hometowns um, and the just critical gift that people in that community gave me of making me understand I did not know nearly as many things as I thought I did. And that a lot of those life skills I had acquired that I had worked really hard for that I thought really mattered were entirely useless and sometimes actively harmful in the place that I was operating. And knowing that I carry a certain privilege in the world and the first thing I got to do is sit down and shut up in any other community I walk into and a lot of times in my own community too. Um, and there's, there's a real gift and I think about all the people who taught me that at their own time and expense. Um, and there is when I think about communities I advocate for, I have to kind of put myself back in that time in that space and say, if I had to explain this to my next door neighbor in that community, would she be like, oh yeah, go do that. Or would she be like, that's dumb, why is that happening? Um, and that that is a really useful checkpoint in my life. It's like, if I had to explain this to Obi, who was the lady next door, like what would I say and what would her reaction be? Um, and that, that's a good starting place for me a lot of the time. I love that. Where were you uh, living during your Peace Corps service? I was in this tiny little village called Kalibombo. It's in Mali and it's in a minority language community. So like 10,000 people in the world speak the dialect that I spoke when I was there. Um, so it is even, um, even within Mali, it is an interesting experience to be living in a community like that that is also marginalized in a lot of ways out of its own majority language communities. Fascinating. Well, yeah, I've, I obviously know a bit about the work you do at CARE, but Emily, I'm, I'm excited for other folks to learn from you today and thankful that you're joining us. Um, so let's get into the, the discussion. And Harim, I want to start with you because um, you do some really fascinating work around using data-driven solutions to, desert, to, to serve diverse and marginalized communities. Tell us a little bit about your work and tell us about some of the results that you're pushing towards. Yeah, so um, in my time at Munichre, um, what I've been working on is building models that support kind of the automation of underwriting. So if you've ever applied for any kind of insurance coverage, um, it you uh, there's a like an assessment that takes place. So one of the ways that you can expand assessment and expand access is using a data-driven solution that prioritizes uh, you know, that prioritizes manual resources for review of more complex cases. But one of the things that comes into play every time you're kind of, um, you know, using something to automate a, a solution that was originally, you know, rendered by a human is that um, people that were well served by the system previously will continue to be well served in the new context. But how do you ensure that, you know, if you're building a data driven solution, you continue to serve uh, diverse and marginalized communities? So, uh, that's the context of the work, you know, I do at Munichree, but it, a lot of it is informed by my, by my background working in uh, data science for public policy use cases. Um, and there, 
we really have to ensure that your data is representative of the community you are trying to serve. And obviously, you know, a lot of you are doing work with data for social good and social impact. And so, you, but you may not be in the stage where you're building models, but the fact that you're starting to understand your data, that's the biggest, you know, factor because you actually may know more about your organization state than the data may tell you. And that's because you have more context than numbers. And I think one part uh, of that is like, you have to engage your stakeholders and stakeholders are the people also represented by the data, not just the people the data is gonna serve. So one part of that, one easy part of that is like, are you using the right language to describe each data point? Because at the end of the day, each data point is the person. Do they, for example, if you work in a healthcare context, you know, what, uh, what, do you, what does that person wanna be called? Do they wanna be called a patient? Do they wanna be called a client? Do they wanna be called a customer? Like using the right language, describe that person gives you the empathy you need to start to work in, uh, start to use the data in, in a social good or social context setting. Um, that like take in just even getting started, uh, starting to use data um, to serve, you know, diverse and marginalized communities. Yeah, that, that makes a ton of sense. And thank you for, for shedding light on that. I think um, as we kind of talked about in the intro, we have this really unique opportunity to use these tools in a range of ways, including trying to shift towards more inclusive and more equitable outcomes and being more considerate of folks who maybe haven't been included historically in some of these critical decisions. And th that's a perfect segue, uh, Emily, to one of the more powerful tools that we implement at CARE that I'd love for you to talk about. And that's our Rander, rapid gender analysis. I mean, especially deploying that tool uh, to support women in emergency situations. Tell us about CARE's rapid gender analysis. Tell us about why we think this is such a dynamic tool and some of the insights that you're gathering. So one of the things, just to anchor this in, in the spirit of you will know the truth and the truth will make you mad. In 2013, literally zero emergency responses anywhere in the world were based on any data from women. Zero in less than a decade ago. Um, because, well, it's hard data to collect and we don't really build data systems for that and have a lot of algorithms that just kind of aggregate everything. And, and we were just at the beginning of the universe of, okay, big data, if you look for it online, you can find it. And that means we build a lot of systems that overlook the people who aren't in big data. A lot of the people who aren't in big data are, let's just take a wild stab at this, female refugees are not showing up in your big data. Um, they're not showing up in the standard census populations because they're in flux and they're at risk. So CARE said, well, that's just unacceptable to us. That's not going to work. And also, this can't be the kind of thing where it takes us a year to get those women's opinions. We can't say, well, what we'll do is we'll launch a data collection process at the beginning of a crisis, and then we'll jump through all of the regular research hoops you do to get all of your data absolutely as good as you can, because by the time that happens, all of the decisions are already made. In a lot of crises, emergency response decisions are made in the first 72 hours or in the first week. So if you say, hold right there, we'll get you data a year from now, it's not gonna be good enough. People will make the decisions they're gonna make in the absence of data rather than waiting for perfect data. So how do we do this faster? Um, how do we think about really lifting up those voices? And I'll give an example from the beginning of the COVID universe, we did rapid data collection in a refugee camp and one of the things we saw is women were saying mobility is a real problem for me. I can't get out of the house. And we thought, is that about public transportation? Is that about like not knowing that a mask will help you stay safer? Is that do we need to like organize lines better at water points? 
And then we said, okay, tell us why, why is this problem happening? And women said, my husband thinks that COVID is caused by women's rights. And the way to solve COVID is to roll back my rights because COVID is God's punishment for allowing me rights in the first place. That is a whole different solution. What you have to do to address that problem is a whole different set of things than you have to do to address, well, I need a mask so that I feel safe leaving the house. Those are not the same problem. So thinking about how do you do this bounce back and forth between what the math is telling you and what the people are telling you. And how do you cross check to make sure that when we're making decisions, we're making it based on the lived experience of people who might not be showing up in your data. That is such a, a powerful example. And I think, you know, many of us can um, maybe connect the dots on that, that very salient point that you made around that balance between what the data is telling us and what the people are telling us. And it's something that I think we're all uh, grappling with in our work. Um, Cynthia, you all have developed a really fascinating tool um, at Girl Effects um, that's called your, your chatbot. Uh, product. I'd love for you to tell us a little bit about that product and how you're using that to do some of what Emily's talking about and break through to collect data in safe and evolving ways uh, from girls by meeting them where they are. Thank you. Yeah, um, I, I was uh, vigorously nodding to both Harim and Emily because I think uh, it's it's uh, it's really nice to be on a on on a, a panel that talks about the fact that there's so there's such a vast segment of society that's not even taken into account in any of the historical reportage that we've seen around data forever. <laughs> it's not a new phenomenon at all. They just never showed up, you know, like uh, when Emily was talking about how uh, uh, female refugees don't show up. And, I, and in my head, I was like, oh, but like for the last, like leaving out the last five or six years, Indian women's consumption of media didn't show up in reports that have been coming out uh, almost yearly uh, when it comes to say like TV usage or or any of that as well. So it's just uh, it's quite confounding how uh, no matter what scale of this this data you want to see that's that's depicting women and and young and adolescent girls and vulnerable identities just don't show up at all. Um, and and sorry about that. I was just very excited to hear that. Uh, so the, so the please, girl please effect chatbot. <laughs> yeah. Um, so girl effect has uh, uh, within our portfolio we have a purely digital product, which is the chatbot. Uh, it's called Bixis in South Africa, and it's called an ad adaptation of that is called Bolbehan in India. Um, and when we uh, started building this up. Uh, what was very interesting was that you know there's so it's it's centered around sexual reproductive health it's centered around very simplistic questions that girls have in general from like what does menstrual cycle mean to what is std hiv all of the things that we think that you will in general you should be having access to but young girls don't really have access to so it it answers it's a chatbot that answers for that gap that exists but what's very Interesting is that uh, when we think about communication around SRH, there's always this conversation about an agony aunt who relatably answers your frequently asked questions. And so when Bixis was being designed, it was kind of designed as a automated agony aunt, but that's not built as somebody older, but it's built as somebody who is talking at the same level uh, to the girl that we are trying to reach out to. And, you know, it, 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 it also comes back to Harim's point around... Uh, 
empathy uh, and the way that the language around it is designed is not just meant to be a question answer session that oh i'm, I'm going to get a stand, standard answer to a question that says why is this happening in my body but it's instead also taking into account what's her lived reality how, how does she navigate the world is is her navigation of the world filled with shame and taboo has she been told that her body is not uh is not something she should be knowing about because it's so overtly sexualized or um that the idea of just not knowing about what goes on like i think there's there's enough and more chatter right now around how biased medical practices especially when it comes to women's bodies are and, and really really enjoying it it's, it's frustrating but it's really beautiful to see this conversation come up and so many people bring it up now saying it's about time that you know doctors stop uh treating women and women's bodies in the way that they do they just let it go by because it's it's also adding to the same conversation of stigma and taboo and bixus is built with the idea of uh trying to navigate that space it's not built to replace uh any of the actual caregiving or any of the actual uh, professionals that they should be going to but instead it's kind of trying to replace the shame and taboo and allows her to interact with the chatbot in her time in her space in in that sense of privacy to get those basic questions that she really doesn't get an answer to so when we started building out bixis and i say all of this because today after uh multiple years of it if of it being launched it's reached a place where we know what this evolution of the chatbots been like uh but when we did launch it 2018 i'm sure a lot of these uh, you know these these markers and principles that we have now was still evolving um and one of my favorite things to talk about is none of this in terms of technology or a product or how data is being uh read is new it's not that chatbots have not existed forever it's not that we've we've not seen this happen in the corporate sector forever but i think what's what's really interesting challenging and it's about time that we do it is that we don't design with this majoritarian view of who uses data or whose data is being tracked or what behavior are you getting or who wants what but it's it's design thinking about who is this young girl what does she want uh what is she not happy about because sometimes when you're in in your absolutely great intention when you're trying to create a product that is supposed to be empathetic sometimes it can also be infantilizing it can also be overtly complicated uh and so the idea is to keep checking ourselves uh not just in terms of the data that the chatbots giving us but also what the girl is telling us about her interaction with it so i think for us bixis is kind of and bolbehan is kind of the way for us to learn how to use this data first of all ethically how do you how do you design respectfully how do you design with these vulnerable identities in mind and how to not cringe every time you hear that you're wrong so <laughs> because <laughs> i think <laughs> i think we all have this problem of somebody comes and says oh but something's not working with your product and you go mm, but no i tried this i tried that and and our reaction to it always is not really actually that's right if she's telling us she doesn't like this we need to go and find out what she doesn't like about it and uh, and how do we make it better for her so yeah uh, that's that's what we're trying to do uh, a small uh, hope here at girl effect that makes us no that's amazing that's a really cool product um and i have some familiarity with bots and kind of some of the cool <laughs> things that that we can get from that tool when I, when i worked in local government 
We used a bot to work with folks um, around resolving traffic citations and trying to give them information and make it easier. And it really did like revolutionize the way that certain folks interacted with, um, with, with that system and made it far less like imposing and even, um, you know, feel less of like a, a burden to, to them as we gathered that data. Um, so one of the things that you said that made me laugh and smile is this thing of like, how do we find ways to like accept the feedback without feeling like it's a personal affront to all the work that we've done, all the work we're leading. I think about a project that we're working on here in the US um, around um, our microfinance program at CARE. We call it Village Savings and Loans. In the US, we're calling it Community Trust. And it's been like a bumpy road. Like we, it doesn't resonate maybe the same way in certain communities uh, here in the US that it does in other parts of the world. And we're constantly kind of working to iterate it and try to update it. And so one of the challenges that, that we're having, and I really would love to hear from all of you, I'm doing like public real-time problem solving. So everybody pardon me as we work this thing out. One of the challenges that we're trying to resolve is that, and, and it's something that each of you have kind of mentioned, we know and we are hearing directly from our community members and our program participants about some of the gaps or even some of the things that don't resonate as much with them in the US context. Um, but there's this like tension with how successful the thing has been in so many other contexts that we're trying to balance. I wonder how you all would you know, either advise me or advise other members of the team around how we can bridge that gap between knowing that we've got to use like the best and most thoughtful data available, but struggling to line that up with what we know and are hearing from like the front lines from maybe a smaller sample size of people who are saying, ah, this just doesn't really resonate with this. Um, so Harim, I'd love to start with you, but Emily, I saw you nodding your head. Uh, Sandia, I'd love to hear from all of you. How, how would you address that or what are your thoughts? Yeah, I can comment a bit on that because I think it, it, tying back to, you know, some of Emily's points around you have this big data that's aggregated and all these things, but the people on the, in the front lines are telling you something very different. And I think that is where when an organization is starting to put something into production, you learn so much, like what's working, what's not working. And sometimes the best solution may be to get rid of all your algorithms, right? Get rid of your algorithm, just put a human in. And it, and that may, you know, just be, maybe that's my cynical perspective or something. I've been in this like for a while, like sometimes you just need to turn off your system that's in production and take a breath, listen to what the people are telling you and try and come up with like a human centered solution rather than going with a data first solution. Because at the end of the day, you're trying to have social impact. You're trying to serve a population. And if that population doesn't feel served by the tool you build or the visualization you've done or, or something, then, then it's, it's a waste of, of, of efforts. And I think I found honestly that if you try to make a one size fits all solution and it, even in my like you know, for-profit work experience. If you try to build a one-size-fits-all solution, try to apply it globally, you have very different results and outcomes because there's different regulatory environments, different uh, data literacy and different data representation. You know, in, in North America, we're pretty lucky that, um, for example, men and women are represented relatively equally in data sets or represented well, but as, you know, Sunny mentioned, and Emily also mentioned, that's not the case uh, all over the world. So you may design a solution that turns out actually the population you were looking to serve wasn't even represented in the data you collected. So, but, but you will also, you will have learned 
like uh, a really important lesson that you can go on and apply to, to other contexts. Um, yeah, sometimes you just have to listen to people over the model. I think that that's that's my perspective. Um, one of the things we notice is there are a couple of words that always sort of set off my spidey sense. Anytime someone says that's going to be more efficient, in parentheses, they're saying for me. They're not saying for the woman. They're saying for me. They don't know that. They're not, they're not saying that out loud. They're not even saying it in their heads. But that parentheses is there. Uh, it's going to be so much easier. It's going to be so much faster. For who? Right? And like, you know, Harine said, that human-centered design. Keep putting that question on the table. For who? For who? Who is it going to be faster for? Who is it going to be easier for? The team at One Acre Fund uses this great phrase that I love that's called breaking inward. It's like we have to design systems so that when they break, we bear the burden and our participants don't. Um, and that's something that is hard to do because that means that's a budget implication, that's a time implication, that's an out, like there has to be somebody to do the lifting when the tech solution falls apart because it's at some point going to, we all know it, at some point in your process, your tech solution is going to do what you need. Um, and so, but thinking about that when this breaks, it breaks inward and that the burden doesn't go to the person who can least afford it. I'm going to start using that. I love that uh, phrase, breaking inward. Cynthia, please go for it. I'm not sure if this is uh, as, as valid as what Harim and Emily said, but I'll give this a shot anyway. I think, uh, and obviously assuming that all of the, um, uh, the, the baseline and the general research is all done, I would say sometimes it's also a function of where you're starting the conversation that your product is taking them to. Um, and it's and I, I always give a really simple example because uh, I honestly can't think of another right now, which is, <laughs> for example, when you talk to uh, adolescents or young women about contraception, um, there is a certain way that they react to what their awareness around contraception is. So for example, if, if your country has, if, if a particular country has had a lot of focus on say condom usage or has had like PSAs around it, or for example, in like the uh, early nineties, late eighties, there was a lot of focus in India around the contraceptive pill, a specific pill called a specific thing um, that used to be uh, pushed out as PSAs across the country. Almost every young person's response to a contraceptive or knowledge around a contraceptive feels limited to just that, oh, but I know that I have to wear a condom. Oh, but I know that I can get a pill. Uh, and sometimes they don't realize that actually what they need to know is that why contraception is their sexual health, their right, what, what it allows you to do, how you should be navigating it. Um, and I'm, I'm not even kidding that the entry point into talking about contraception is menstruation because every girl has questions around menstruation and it is a ladder up from that conversation around menstruation towards contraception that takes a while that we usually see nobody really that we know of unless they're in need now or they have they're in that journey where they need that intervention they need that information they're clear about their questions around contraception in general, it, it starts with something that feels more uh, or less um, heavy or, or weighted uh, because there's there, what, what we've also seen come, come at us sometimes. And, and I'm and huge disclaimer here that obviously this is not relevant for every single thing. It's a potential way to think about how, how to get your 
product that you think is necessary as an intervention that you're designing, but is not getting picked up by people is um, sometimes the context that you live in makes it really difficult for you to accept the intervention as well, because you think of the normalization of everything in your life that has told you that this is the only way, right? So it's, it's also just about trying to figure out what could be the the conversational user journey that somebody would have that takes them towards being open enough to want to hear about what your intervention is trying to do. Because there's, you know, I, I, I don't know how it's always said, but need gap doesn't really need to be the intervention at the need gap. Sometimes it's just about sometimes realizing how they reach there. That might be a, a potential solution, but yeah. Yeah, Harim, I see you. You have something yes. to add, please. So uh, I want to tie this back uh, a little bit to what both Emily and Sandy have said, but you know, Emily said she hates the word efficiency because it's efficient for someone. And I just want to highlight how, um, you know, when you, when you take, because you know, a lot of data science was initially invented and used in, in the private sector. And if you choose to apply to the public sector, you have to look beyond metrics to talk about performance and also understand the consequences of the errors in that system, right? Because no data-driven process is going to be error-proof or whatever. And this was a, a bit of a legal case that came up recently. I won't give too much specifics, but you can Google your way around it. But um, there was a, a, a city that was using um, a model-based system to identify individuals who were, uh, who were going to be investigated for welfare fraud. And it, they found that the system had a much higher percentage of errors on diverse and marginalized communities, right? And so that tells you a little bit about the data that went into the system, the way it was designed. And, um, you know, Emily talked about we should bear the burden when we mess up in these situations, not the people, not the, you know, very sensitive communities that you're trying to serve with these data-driven solutions. Because no one starts out with the intention to do harm, right? But if it's a poorly designed, you don't understand the consequences that can take place, that's when harm creeps in. And so one of the things that, you know, the drumbeat I'm on is always bias testing. Bias testing at the input stage, bias testing at the output stage, just understanding those concepts um, in whatever data-driven solution you're building and making sure you have outs. Like here's a short, you know, here's a short circuit, like here's where we're gonna turn this off. We were measuring this thing and it's not doing well, so turn it off and, and take a step back. Rather than we built the solution, we invest a lot of money into it. And sometimes you find that in government, you find that in public policy, put a lot of time into this. We need to, you know, this is really gonna change everything. And, you know, worst comes to worst, it's an election year. You know, this is something we're touting, like all these things. So, you know, just ensuring that you're measuring not just performance of your system, measuring the errors and making sure you're not disproportionately harming those those communities and just Emily and Sonia got me so excited because they were just touching on different contexts but the same kind of theme that you know I've seen in my experience. Yeah, this is an exciting and informative conversation. I'm learning a lot. Thank you all for the the responses and the input. And I hope that many of these things I think can cut across onto other challenges that other folks may be grappling with. Um, we got some great questions coming in from our audience, so I want to pass the mic to Ladere to try those into the conversation as well. Thanks, Brian. And thanks to the speakers. I think we are kind of set in that space around how data is collected and how organizations use the data to make policy changes, 
um, and impact communities. But I'm curious if you all can touch on how is data given back to the communities for them to then take that knowledge themselves and make changes from like a community level. Um, would love to hear maybe some of the solutions that you all have seen or some of the things that you've seen done in communities to make sure the data is given and they have ways to make an impact on their own. So maybe let's start with Emily, since I see you nodding a lot, and then we'll hear from Sandia and then Harim. Sure. And that's one of the things we've really been working on, especially in the COVID world. I think we were working on it before and thinking about it, but we've really had to accelerate into that is what does this mean for the communities themselves? What can they do with this data? And also our ethical obligation that they spent time and energy with us, that, that like, this was a cost to give us this data. Now what? Um, and a couple of things that we think about. One is how do you make it simple, right? Is that in the world of data, more and more and more, because it's the tech allows you to collect all kinds of things, which takes a lot of time and then you don't actually analyze or use because there's time at every moment in the process. So how do you really strip that back and make it simple? And for us, one of the great checks is, can I present this back to the community in a way that is authentic and that they say, yes, that resonates with my experience. Can I present this back to the women who are part of it? Um, two of my favorite examples that are coming up right now, women in Niger, we did this big data collection process and we went back and we had to redesign all our graphics and all of our visuals because they were all designed for people who'd been looking at bar charts since the third grade. Um, and women in the community were like, oh, I don't know what any of those lines on paper are, help me out here. Um, so we did have to redesign the way we even presented data. And the women looked at that and they said, you know who's not here is there's this ethnic minority in my community that speaks a different language and they don't show up at all because everything that got translated got translated into a couple of languages that didn't make it to that one. And so this woman named Rahil in Niger went every morning to the well for weeks and did in that language, she did in-person data sharing. And then she talked to the local radio into letting her have her own show in that language to talk about COVID and COVID response. That's the kind of change that means it's a whole community that has access to information about COVID that didn't have access before. Um, because she saw a gap. She looked at that data and she said, there's a hole here that you haven't paid attention to yet. The other story I'm going to share is out of Ethiopia, where, and, and this is one of the places where data is both incredible and frustrating, is that um, we, we just published a report called She Told Us So Again, and it's a pretty deliberate, like, women told us right at the top of COVID, here's what was going to happen in their lives, and two years later, it's all true. They knew that. They knew right off the bat that this is what this is, what this is going to look like for me. And um, in some places, child marriage started to go up and women started saying, hey, and girls started saying, hey, this is a problem for me. You know, mayor's offices don't really listen to teenage girls. They just don't. Like, it's not a, particularly teenage girls who've been pulled out of school and are now married and supposed to be at home being a housewife. Like, that's not who they pay attention to. Being able to go from a lot of girls are saying this to here is the number. Here is the actual number of girls who got married and the actual number of girls out of school allowed those girls to get leverage and to get back into school because they could come in with a very hard data lens that was purely assigning numbers to their own life experience. But that was a tool they could use to shift that conversation that when it was just one or two girls at a time, they couldn't move the needle themselves. So that is a space where data can be really powerful in ways that we might not see where we're sitting. And thank you, Emily, for showing those examples. I think that that really helps people kind of get an idea of how it actually works in real time. Um, Sandia, I want to pull you back in here to kind of answer this question. Um, yeah, I, I have a slightly different perspective because I think the data that that girl effect pulls is 
uh, not sure how to really categorize that within this particular question. But one of the ways that we do this because we're working with adolescent girls is um, we have researchers that are adolescent girls themselves. They're called technology enabled girl ambassadors. Uh, for the, you know, I, I just absolutely love how much people, most uh, most people that I speak to about Tegas think of this as absolutely wow and the, what an insanely brilliant solution. And I'm like, hmm, yes, talking to adolescent girls, talking to adolescent girls blows your mind, which tells you exactly how research is, is conducted in general. Uh, and, but I think that within... Um, Within the way that the, the the narrative, what we're learning, how girls themselves are using the various products, uh, any inputs that we're learning when we look at formative research as well goes back into the communities through these tegas themselves, because they don't only function at the beginning of a grant, or they don't only function at the end of the grant. They're actually uh, already a part of what Girl Effect does. They're they're part of our internal uh, adolescent fo focused. Uh, research methodology of sorts, if I can call it that. Uh, and the idea is very simple. They, especially in very marginalized com communities, or I, I would actually even say things like what what's very, uh, uh, it's it's a little difficult to sometimes understand why we use these words. But fine. Uh, and you know, in the urban slum, the the difference in the way that your privilege or your access. Uh, is uh, comes to life even in a very urban setting uh, and especially in a country like India where I, I always talk about how uh, jarring and dissonance inducing it is to walk down a street of a main city in, in India because you'll see like this huge high rise and right next to it you'll see a almost breaking down slum and you're looking at, at you know immense poverty and you're looking at insane wealth at the same time in the same frame at that same moment uh, and they're all invisibilized i mean it's it's really uh, it's like there are a lot of movements that have happened that has made data a little bit more inclusive in in india where i think we're, we're very very far away from any sort of ideal uh, way in which we're represented um but how do you get somebody who is living in this dissonance filled geographical location to give you true data because if you recruit incorrectly then you're basically dealing with inputs that come from very different levels of privilege and access uh, then telling you about what you need to design and the only way that you can truly know uh, what all of these different sets or different types or different levels of access or whatever different households that girls come from is if you're the research that you're doing is also kind of categorizing or pulling out these right stories. Um, and we've realized that in this whole process of getting data from them, the only way we're able to actually get any insights from young girls is we tell them what we know as well. Like we tell them about, we tell our researchers that why don't you talk to them about all of this other research? Why don't you talk to them about how this product functions? Why don't you talk to them about why it's required? And because it's a conversation between peers, there's a lot more honesty. There's a lot more genuineness. So they're hearing about what, what we're trying to do, but the, the way they respond to it is critically, or they'll talk to us about very obvious oversights that have been done. They talk to us about... Uh, uh, how they would like it to to be seen because you know one of the things that that also is missing is that in any visioning exercise 
it's almost always the audience that you're trying to design for that's missing in that visioning exercise. That vision is mostly your organizations and not really your audiences or that corporations or that institutions, right? So uh, I think the way that we try to parcel it in and, and I'm calling out that we're not perfect at it and we'll have to figure out much better ways of doing it. And we are currently in the process of figuring out how to design by ensuring that even if you have something as uh, distinct as using digital products, within the digital product, how do we create space where they can see how the data is being collected, they can see how to access that data, use that as they see fit, and how is that going to be done ethically and respectful? So we have a very long journey, but I think the, the way we're trying to give back is through the data themselves and, and get them to talk to their, their friends and the people in their community. So yeah. Love that. Thank you, Sandhya. And Harim, I want to bring you back into this question as well, but add a little bit more onto yours since you come from the data um, scientist perspective. Would love for you maybe to answer this question, but also share with us a little bit around what are some safeguarding practices used to make sure that the people you're speaking to, um, the data that they give you, they're still protected. I know Sandhya and Emily both touched on talking to, to girls in particular and just making sure some of the answers they give you or interviews you have with them are kind of um, kept safe somewhere so there there's anonymity and there they feel comfortable as well so can you speak to how data scientists kind of manage that that balance there well so this question has been really enlightening for me because um you know emily and sanya talked about really great examples about giving data back to the community but all the context that i've worked in is the data is very very sensitive so you it's not something you can turn around and present back to a, a community or something, but this made me think about how you, so I'll, I'll get to your question, Ladarian, in a second, but like the, the, the thing I thought about is, okay, so I haven't really been giving data back to the community, but what have, what have we been doing to ensure, you know, the insights you got from the data are transparent and contribute to community building and uh, are effective. So I'll, I'll give one example. I worked with, um, a transportation authority in the US. And one of the things that they wanted to do was do um, an analysis of the impact of removing service lines, right? So it's like, okay, there's budget cuts. We need to remove the service line. If we remove these three bus stops, are we going to be skipping a minority heavy neighborhood that maybe uses uh, you know, this bus line to commute to work? Like being able to answer those questions. So what we did was we created a visualization that allowed you know, the transit authority understand that. And we also guided them, okay, when you go to these community hearings to understand, uh, you know, what how people use transportation, all this, go to them and say, hey, this is what we see in our data. Is this reflective of your lived experience? So giving those insights back to the community in that way and getting feedback rather than this is what the data shows, this is what we're doing, get rid of these, you know, bus stops and we'll, you know, make our process better. And then in the public sector, or sorry, private sector that I've worked in, you know, using models, putting them into production. One thing we really want to get away with, like, I hate the word black box. You know, if someone tells you, oh, this process is a black box, I can't tell you what's going on, but we're just trusting. Like anybody who has blind faith, blind trust in the model, don't trust that person. <laughs> like that's, that's the thing I'd add to it. So, you know, commitments to transparency in the communities you're serving, whether it be public or private, give, and I think GDPR does a pretty good job of this, right? So the European data protection guidelines is you should know what data an organization has on you and how they use that data to come up with a recommendation or come up with a solution. They should give you explainability factors for the models that you were run through. They should explain to you how they're using the tools to make a decision about you. And obviously in public, 
context, it's a lot more sensitive data and they're doing, you know, making decisions about giving you access to services or not access to services. So um, th that's my like two cents on giving data back to the community or the person who owns the data. And I'm sorry, I forgot the question you did. You, you asked me to, to add up. I think you kind of touched on it too, is okay. just around how do we make sure that people um, who are sharing sensitive information keep their anonymity, um, especially vulnerable populations that are work with um, that are impacted by policies that come up. So I think your your response kind of wrapped that all up. And I like that you shared the fact of, you know, there's a way to give back sensitive information, like in a data sharing type of landscape that makes it feel more comfortable instead of just handing over data to people, right? Um, so thank you for sharing that, that example. I think for a lot of us who are not data scientists, it's sometimes hard to figure out how the numbers and the Excel documents work in real time. So thank you to all of you for sharing some kind of real time examples. Ryan, I'm gonna pass it back over to you for our last question. Yeah, um, the time is, is gone as it always does every, every week. Um, this has been a really informative discussion for me. I've learned quite a bit and I hope that other folks uh, who've joined will be able to stay in touch or continue to get their questions uh, answered. We always wrap up by asking our speakers to share with us one thing that's bringing you great joy these days or something that you're doing to create joy in the world around you. Um, so let's hear from Emily. We'll hear from Harim and we'll get our last word today from Sandhya. Um, there's so many things that create joy. And I think one of the things that I really love is how do we take this idea that we are really just humans in this together and that without wishing to be trite about it, we have to start from the assumption of equality. I have to assume that the person across the table from me, regardless of any of their characteristics on paper is as valuable a person as I am and that their life experience is as important as I am. And that's one of the things that I get to do on a good day at CARE is I get to have a conversation with a woman in Niger who's like, here's what you missed. Here's where you got it wrong. Change that please. Um, and having that space to listen and say, okay, that's what we're getting wrong. Let's try to do better. Um, is one of the things that I really love about the work that I get to do. What about you, Harim? What's bringing you joy these days? I'm sorry, I don't have as nice of an answer as Emily, but um, in isolation, I've been watching a lot of Food Network and that's been bringing me a lot of joy and drinking a lot of soup. So that, that's where I am right now. <laughs> Um, I, I have quite a, a simple one as well. I, I paint uh, and uh, quite uh, funnily, I'm, I'm actually trying to tell a lot of people around me that it's okay to shut off from everything around you if you need to for a little bit and that nobody is going to judge you and nobody is going to hold you by the throat and nobody is going to make you feel anything. So if you don't want to share anything or not be on a platform and why out your whole phone for like a week it's not a bad idea uh, and there's just so much anxiety around not being online as well that uh, uh, and and that we we deal with so much dissonance inducing news in general where we you can't really understand your reality that feels very secure with the news that you're hearing all the time and and this is not just global news like I, I think um, uh, my country is, is up in flames as well so uh, I'm I'm trying to paint spend some time with my cats a little bit of music and in general telling people to calm down and and get off of everything that's anxiety inducing so yeah that's, that's what I, mean. I love it i think that's very sage advice um we're towards the end of our time but before we close 
Um, I'll invite anyone who's willing and able, turn your camera on, turn your microphone on, join me in giving a round of applause and appreciation to our amazing speakers today. Thank you all for being with us. Thank you so much. With that said, we'll keep the chat open for about five more minutes. DJ Sofa, give us an amazing set. Thank you all for being with us today.